Mark 1 and compare it to John 1, we're going to move beyond just saying that uh, reading without referring to context is really kind of a waste of time and will lead you to all kinds of false conclusions. But today I want to talk about the fact that context, not commentaries, is the key to legitimate Bible study. And it, it, and it includes correlation. Okay, Jackie, context includes correlation. Not just the verse before and the verse after, but other parallel statements that fit together. Think of two jigsaw puzzles, Bailey. To, to think of two jigsaw puzzle pieces that look very different, but you can tell from various factors that they fit together somehow. And once they do, once you probably fit them together, that sense of the whole tells you more than either one of the pieces could on its own. So we're going to compare what Jesus does to those fishermen. And with those fishermen, the passage Sydney read for Call to Worship, we're going to compare that with things that happened before that so you can better understand what's happening in Mark chapter 1. But let's pray for those who protect and serve us. And this is a new picture of Commander uh, uh, Stephen Austin, uh, not Stephen Austin, help me, Scott Austin, yeah, uh, right in the middle. He's uh, my world's, my favorite um, Coast Guard helicopter pilot. And he's a full commander now on his way to captain and someday admiral and maybe president of the United States. I'd vote for him. But let's pray for our active military, our peace officers, and our firefighters. And let's put a, a local slide up there. How about that? There's the Duncan. Shout out to the Duncan Police Department and Fire Department. And Brad, I don't get to uh, ask you to pray very often, but pray will be teachable today. And let's pray for those who protect and serve us, and then we'll study the Word, okay? You do that? Warmer upper, and with the idea of context continuing, the importance of context and correlation, I've got some mock headlines that you'll misunderstand unless you put them in context. This is from the Babylon Bee. Babylon Bee is a Christian satirical website. It's just supposed to try to be funny, but make you think. And the thing about jokes is it forces you to use your capacity for abstract thought. Right, David? Okay, here's a headline, and you're just seeing part of it. To prevent future earthquakes, Trump authorizes nuking California. <laughs> Which, you know, we have to destroy the village to save it. Probably not a good idea. That's just me. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez appears on The Price is Right, but she didn't win because she guesses everything is free. (laughs) And somebody's paying for it. Here's my personal favorite one. Pastor livestreams sermon so congregation won't have to look up from their phones. Now, I know some of you may be cruising FaceTime or Facebook or whatever it's called, but uh, I know everybody's got their Bible on this nowadays, and that's fine. And uh, because we've got a few visitors, let me just say, and one of the rules around here is if, if at any time during my presentation, Roxanne, you feel the urge to slumber, don't fight it, because if you can't find rest in the house of the Lord, where are you going to find it? Right, Maxine? You've got to find that rest somewhere. Here's the last uh, headline you need the context to understand. Christian man, it doesn't he look happy, goes on a one-meal-per-week diet to reflect his Bible reading habits. I say that for last for a reason. Again, it's too convicting. Okay. Context is the key. Context includes correlation. Commentaries are fine, but the text is written to be understood, and you can pretty much understand it most of the time if you read it in context. Let's start by reading Mark 1. In fact, uh, we want to emphasize what the Lord does in 14 through 20, but for context, since we're talking about that, 
Let's start in, in verse 1. This is the only New Testament gospel that starts by referring to Jesus as the Son of God directly in the first verse. The gospel of Mark. This is the gospel according to Mark, I should say. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, Isaiah 40, the Old Testament prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. God the Father is going to send a special prophetic messenger. We call him John the Baptist, but Brad, he wasn't a Baptist, he was a Jew. Okay, So we're going to call him John the Baptizing Jewish Prophet. Behold, God the Father, just before he sends his servant, the Messiah, the Savior, is going to send an advanced man, a prophetic voice, my messenger ahead of you, the servant of Yahweh, the Messiah, the Christ, who will prepare your way. He'll be like the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist, the fulfillment of that prophecy, the messenger before the Messiah, appeared in the wilderness right on time, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all kinds of people from the area of Judea were going out to him, and all kinds of people from Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John, the baptizing Jewish prophet, the object of the prophecy of Isaiah 40, was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, looked like Elijah, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Is that kind of the keto diet? And he was preaching and saying, after me, this is not about me, the Messiah is on the ground after thousands of years of prophecy, one is coming who's mightier than I, and I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he, that is the one coming after John, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At the moment of saving faith, the Holy Spirit puts you into the body of Christ. That's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That puts you into the capital C church. The capital C church is that set of all believers of all colors, cultures, denominations, generations, who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. So Jesus is still fulfilling that promise. Verse 9, in those days, during the ministry of John the Baptist, as Jesus is just beginning his public ministry, Jesus came from Nazareth, where he's been a tecton, a worker with wood and stone for his life from 12 through 30, uh, in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He's identifying with his messianic forerunner. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit, the spirit like a dove descending upon him and a voice came out of the heavens saying, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. So notice, we don't know exactly beyond being a carpenter what Jesus did from 12 to 30-ish, but we know God the Father says he's perfect. This is my beloved son, I'm perfectly happy with him. So the theory is he went to India and became a Buddhist or that he went to the Essenes and they taught him some secret knowledge that nobody knows about is ridiculous. He's a carpenter working hard with his hands and he is, his righteousness is declared at the baptism. Now immediately he goes one on one with Satan after that and we read this. He's going to de- demonstrate his righteousness after having it declared. Immediately the spirit impelled him, directed him to go into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, Lucifer, that old adversary. He's not an imaginary figure. He's very real. He's very intelligent. He's very malicious. But he can only be one place at one time. And I don't think Satan himself spends a whole lot of time in Duncan. 
Uh, I think he's in Washington, D.C. most of the time. That's just me. I, but he can only be one place one time. But he's got a lot of helpers. But he's only got, for every demon, every fallen angel, Satan's got how many angels we've got on our side. Right? One third fell. So we, so God can double team all of the demons. Plus, God could have all the angels fall and it wouldn't matter. God wins anyway. So let's not overrate Lucifer, but let's not deny his reality either. So he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, demonstrating his perfect righteousness. And he was with wild beasts. It was not a pleasant or easy place to be, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, here's our passage for today. Now, after John had been taken into custody by Herod Antipas, because uh, John didn't think he should be marrying somebody that was illegitimate for him to marry. So, you know, you speak to power, you get in trouble. So after John, the baptizing Jewish prophet, had been arrested taken to a place called Machiris in Jordan and later killed. He's not going to get out of that imprisonment. After John is in prison, no longer operating, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, saying the time is fulfilled, the gospel of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent means don't stay over there. Believe means come over here. And as he was going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw commercial fishermen. These aren't guys fishing with a beer can and an apple in their hand and having fun. These are guys working for a living, or preparing to work for a living. As he's going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, we know him as Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net. You fish for fun with a hook, you cast a net for commercial fishing. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. We'll move you up a notch on the feeding chain, right, from fish to people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. They leave right in the middle of the workday. So follow this guy. Going on a little further, he, Jesus, saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Peter, James, and John end up being the three closest. Who were also in their boat mending the nets. You know, they're, they're running a commercial fishing business, and you've got to fix the nets. Immediately, Jesus called them in the same way. Follow me, I'll make your fishers of men. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hands, and they went away to follow him. Now, you read this without a larger context, without correlating what the other Gospels say, and it seems like at first meeting, these guys are just working one day, and somebody walks by their place of, of business and says, follow me, I'll make your fishers, man, just leave everything and let's just get going. And it sounds like he they've never seen Jesus before, and they just totally follow this unknown rabbi and hope it works out well. So, would you teach that in Sunday school? Hey kids, you know, if you're on the playground and somebody wanders by and says, hey, follow me and we're gonna have, we're gonna do good things, you won't think your kids should follow somebody like that? This just always seemed odd to me. You know, it seems like we're seeing these guys who've never seen Jesus before and then, and there, I couldn't find it this week, but I've preached on this before and there was a guy from the, like the Appalachian Bible College or something that taught about blind faith and he said this is blind faith i have no idea who this guy is but as long as you have blind faith everything's going to be fine and i've studied the scripture pretty intently for a long time and saving faith is not blind faith it's very much informed trust in a very specific object the messiah the the savior right it's active receptive trust as many as received him to them he gave the right to become sons of God, daughters of God, to those who believe in his name. What is Acts 4? The apostles say, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby 
We must be saved by believing in Christ, not blind faith. I don't know who this guy is. I find out later. I don't think so. What did we see last week, First uh, John 5? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, you trust him as your Savior, is born of God. Um, other parallel passages, but this is not blind faith. How do I know that? I'm going to correlate what we just read with a broader context. Look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Now, some people would say, well, Mark, you got Matthew 1st, Mark 2nd, Luke 3rd, John 4th. So anything in Mark 1 has to happen before anything in John 1, right, Sherry? Because Mark's the second gospel, John's the fourth gospel. So anything in John uh, 1's going to be after uh, Mark, right? Anything in Mark's going to be before? No, it's not like that at all. We have four gospels for a reason, so we can kind of compare and contrast things. And that's not a mistake. There's a good reason for that. So let's look at John 1. And I love this passage, and I'm going to resist the temptation to read the entire thing. But this is a beautiful, beautiful little snapshot. What a unique little moment in the life of Christ. Just after he's been baptized by John, been tempted, demonstrates his righteousness, comes back to where John's doing his thing just temporarily for a couple of days. And just before he really begins the grand opening, quote-unquote, of his ministry, the full-fledged ministry, he attracts his first followers, okay? So look at uh, verse 29, and we're jumping into a series of four days in a row. John does that a lot. He'll, he'll link days, and he'll tell you when he's going from day one to day two. But he's talking about John the Baptist's ministry, John the Baptizing Jews' ministry from verse 19 to 28. And then he says, the next day, after what I just talked about, he, that is John, the baptizing Jewish prophet, saw Jesus coming to him. This is the first time he's seen Jesus since he baptized him. And he said, that's the Lamb of God. That's the guy I've been talking about. I baptized him. I know who it is. That's the Christ. The whole scripture is all about him. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For an Old Testament Jewish person, the Lamb of God is a person tells you Isaiah 53. He was bruised, beaten, and killed for our transgressions, but the Father will see him after he dies, which means he's resurrected, and everybody who knows him has everlasting life. So John the Baptist is saying, I'm, I'm going to work myself out of a job here. This is who I've been telling you about. I baptized him, and now he's back. Uh, this is he, verse 30, John says about Jesus, on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man, the God-man, who's higher who's of a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That kind of thing. I did not recognize him, but I baptized him. I saw the Holy Spirit descend. I know this is the one. This is the one. Verse 34. He is the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. Look at verse 35. Again, the next day. It's the third day of a sequence. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples that he's been telling about to, to talking to, uh, about the Messiah to these two disciples. And all of John's disciples are supposed to go to Jesus, of course. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, that's the Lamb of God. Saw him yesterday. Here he is back. That's the Lamb of God. That's the one who's going to fulfill Isaiah 53. The two disciples of John, who are listening to John so they can find out who the Messiah is and just saw him. They followed Jesus. They literally walked after him. This is talking, not metaphorically, following him as a rabbi or as your Lord, but walking, physically walking after him. Can you imagine? Was that an amazing day? 
These guys have taken a couple weeks off their fishing business to go down to the south part of Israel to interact with John the Baptist because they believe he's the fulfillment of prophecy and he'll point them to the Messiah. And he points them literally to the Messiah and they walk after Jesus. Uh, and I got, you know, I think Jesus has a big smile on his face and he says, they ain't seen nothing yet, you know. And so he looks at Jesus, points to him, says, that's the Lamb of God. These two guys start following Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them and said, what do you seek? And I think he's saying that with a big smile on his face. What are you guys looking for? You've been looking for this? I'm the Messiah. I'm, I'm the Lamb of God. He's right, you know. Um, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? We want to sit down and talk to you. And he said, come and you'll see so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John the Baptist say, that's the Lamb of God, Jesus is the Lamb of God, and then followed him physically, walked right after him, okay, Connor, that day, was Andrew. Now, Andrew doesn't get a lot of press, but Andrew is Peter's brother, and he's a fisherman. Simon Peter's brother. And the first thing after a long afternoon talking to Jesus all day, and it says, there were two disciples that followed, and one was Andrew, right? Is that what it says, Jackie? Who's the other one? 99.9%. It's John who's writing this gospel. John gives you a lot of eyewitness facts, but he never refers to himself by name. He doesn't feel like he's writing to promote his career. He's writing to promote Jesus. So, you know, I won't quite pound the pulpit on this. Yeah, I will. I'll pound the pulpit on this. I'm quite sure that those two disciples that were hoping John would point them to the Messiah, and this did, was Andrew and John. Okay, I'm going to assume that. Now look, what does uh, Andrew do as soon as their long interaction with Jesus that day concludes? Well, first thing he, Andrew, did was found his, find his own brother Simon. And Simon, who's supposed to be down there looking for the Messiah, he's probably goofing off or doing something. That's what he does, you know. Right, playing softball or something. Um, and Simon, by the way, means listener. So let's call him listener. He found his brother listener, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah. I, I think really the Messiah found them, but uh, we found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And so Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus, before he even talks to him, looks at him and said, your name is listener? Are you kidding me? And again, with a big smile on his face. We all know you shoot first and ask questions later. We all know you say stuff before you think about it. They called you listener? Well, that's weird. We're going to give you a nickname. We're going to call you Rocky. You're kind of rough around the edges. Cephas or Peter Petros means Rocky. Uh, you're not such a great listener right now, but we're going to call you Rocky, which is translated Peter into Greek. Cephas is Aramaic. The next day, okay, here's our fourth day in the sequence. Jesus purposed to go back into Galilee, where he's going to focus on beginning his ministry, full-fledged. And he finds another guy, Philip, and Jesus said, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, just next door to Capernaum. And Philip found Nathanael, and he said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets wrote, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So watch this. When you correlate the first passage we read about Jesus going to these guys in the middle of a work day and saying, get out of the boat and follow me, and they jump to it, all that's happening weeks and or months after they've all believed in him as Messiah. Okay, This was not blind faith. This was something they set up in advance. 
after the end of this John 1 passage, they would have all gone back to Galilee together, and they'd go to a wedding, and something interesting happens there, as you know. But Jesus would have said, look, get all your affairs, you guys want to be, and by the way, in, in first century Judaism, uh, you did have some wandering rabbis, but the rabbis didn't pick their people, the, the disciples picked them, so we want to be your full-time kind of disciples, you're, you're, uh, those who will learn from you and kind of help you. And so Jesus interacts with them that way and says, look, you've believed in me as the Christ, now I want you to help me do my messianic ministry. So I know you guys are busy uh, doing fishing, so you make sure you've got everything ready. Now I can't tell you exactly, in part because uh, they had to use sundials instead of wristwatches back then, you know. So he didn't give him an exact date or time, but he said, I'm going to come fairly soon, within a couple of weeks, I'm going to come get you, so have your bags packed, and you'll be able to visit your family from time to time, but you're not abandoning your family, but you're going to invest the next period of years into working with me. So this is already set up. Now Mark doesn't tell you that, because I think he is assuming he probably, the original readers knew that anyway, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are discipleship manuals, they're written for believers to show you the example of Christ. For us to follow. We're not saved by trying to be like Jesus. But those who as sinners have recognized we're guilty, unable to save ourselves, and through God's grace have trusted him alone for salvation. Now we're called to follow his example as believers, not to be saved, but because we are saved. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all discipleship manuals. Uh, so obviously he's writing to, mainly the writing of his Christian audiences to say this is example. So all of us are called to full-time ministry. It's not as dramatic or as directly personal because of the nature of the case. But the point is, John 1, them coming to faith, happens before Mark 1. Now, how do I know that? Well, you went to Dallas Seminary, you went to Trinity Seminary, you know all that stuff, but the average person can't, can't know that. You know how I know that? Because Mark tells you that. Go back to Mark chapter 1. And see, I've got question marks there. Something has happened... Between John 1, when they come to faith, and John the Baptist says, that's the Lamb of God. So he's, he's obviously uh, not confined when he says that. He's, he's still amongst his peeps when he says, that's the Lamb of God. He says it twice, remember? But look at how this passage in uh, where we started, Mark 1, 14. How does it start? What's the first thing he says? So you'll not make this mistake, thinking that they didn't know who he was. Now, after John, the baptizing Jewish prophet, had been arrested. After John had been arrested. So what does that mean? John 1 has to happen before Mark 1. You're looking like I shot your dog, Steve. But let me explain this. That John the Baptist pointed these guys to Jesus when he was at large, when he was at liberty, before he was arrested. And then after he was arrested, Jesus calls these guys a full-time ministry. John's event took place before Mark's event, right? Because Mark is telling you, don't get this confused. This isn't blind faith. This isn't unbelievers trying to work their way into heaven by being like Jesus. These are believers who've been set up, who've wanted to do this, being told, now's the day you start with me, right? So this is, you get that? I can say that again. But that's called correlation. Correlation is just taking two things that might even seem diverse and properly fitting together, not forcing it, so seeing how they work together. And uh, one thing I like about Legos, I, you know, I was I came, I was born way, way before the Lego craze, Carol. Okay, and I can't 
fix stuff like that anyway. But I've got a seven-year-old grandson. You can give him like 10,000 Lego pieces in the instructions, and he will do it. He'll sit there for hours and do it, you know. And some of those pieces don't really necessarily look like they fit together. That's why you've got to have the instructions, right? Uh, life doesn't always look like it fits together. That's why God gives you instruction book, right? Um, okay. Did you, do you follow that? Okay. You, you, buy, you look like you're not buying it. And, uh, <laughs> but I mean, if Mark says after John is no longer doing ministry because he's in jail in Machiris in Jordan, that tells you what happened in John 1 happened before Mark 1. Okay. So, you know, I really feel like prepositional phrases are the key to Bible study. After John was arrested, there's a reason he's telling you that. Okay. That's not just trying to fill the page. So context is the key. Context includes fitting, not just the verse before and the verse after and what you're understanding, but other passages that have a direct relationship. Okay? That's always what it is. Let's look at a couple of other examples of that since we're on that topic today. Um, correct correlation can bust counterfeit conflicts. It took me a long time to think of that, and it really wasn't worth the, the effort. But uh, Because you're factoring the context. Context is the king, by definition. Let's talk about a, a very famous one. A lot of people want to say that Paul, what the Apostle Paul says in Romans uh, Romans 4 and in Galatians 3 about salvation is by faith alone, contradicts with what James says in James 2 when he says we're justified not by faith but by works. And the way this is pitched is... Uh, I've got, I'm colorblind, Brad, as you probably remember, but, or maybe not, but I can see yellow and light blue and white against black. So I gotta use those colors, you know. Hopefully the next pastor, don't hire another colorblind guy. You've been working at a great disadvantage for a long time. Uh, and yeah, I was thinking, since I only got like 16 more messages, I'm gonna start like doing handouts and PowerPoints and a lot of stuff like that, so, just so you'll know. But, uh, yeah, a lot of people see James and Paul as foes, and I'm going to argue they're not. I'm going to say they're not correlating these guys together. But yeah, in Romans and Galatians, Paul says Abraham, uses Abraham in the Old Testament as the poster child of salvation or justification by faith, not by works. He just flat says that twice. Whereas James says Abraham was justified by works, not by faith. So what do you do with that? I mean, Martin Luther, the strong advocate, the catalyst of the Reformation, he wanted to take James out of the New Testament because he really thought James contradicted Paul. But I don't believe that. I believe you're seeing apples and oranges because they're using the terms differently. But here's what I want to start with. In Acts 15, there was a, a, a meeting of the apostles and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to make sure they were clear on the gospel on this point. They all believed that Jews who believed in Jesus as Messiah, would be saved by faith. But they, some of them were thinking, but Gentiles, who were in all, all kinds of slimy stuff that's, that violated the Old Testament law, even just on the eating end of it, you know, they're eating like catfish, evil things like catfish and fried shrimp, my two favorite foods. I'm so glad I'm on the New Testament side of this deal. <laughs> you know, But there was a debate, and it made sense. Uh, it was argued by the more legalistic Jewish Christians, hey, these dirty Gentiles can't just believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved by faith. Certainly they have to convert to Judaism, become proselytes to Judaism, and put themselves under the Old Testament law so they're on the same footing as us. And then they can believe in the Jewish Messiah, right? And Paul went, wrong. 
You know, Peter said wrong. As soon as I preached the gospel to Gentiles in Caesarea, as soon as they believed, they got saved. Paul said, we've just finished a missionary journey and planted these Galatian churches. And these people knew nothing about the Old Testament law in detail, but they believed in Christ and were saved. And when they had that big meeting to hash this out, make sure everybody's agreed on that, in Acts 15, Paul and James, who are both at that meeting, agree that justification is before God is by faith alone. So there's no way James is changing his mind and saying we're saved by good works. James is talking about, Paul's talking about forensic justification, legal justification, your legal standing as a sinner when you trust the Savior. God gives you, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God kind of thing. James is talking about demonstrating the reality of your faith, and God can see your heart when you first trust Christ, but nobody can see, no human being can see Connie's faith unless she lives it out. And to the extent that I sin as a Christian, and I still do, I'm concealing whose I am. To the extent I'm doing good, good works and walking in the Spirit, I reveal who I am. And James is saying, practically, you need to demonstrate your faith. And again, you know, we could call this message fun with timelines, but if I did, nobody would have come. Uh, but uh, I like timelines. In Romans, Paul cites Abraham to validate the fact that people are justified before God by faith. He believed the promises of the Messiah. James is citing Abraham to say justification should issue in works, and people can see that and know you're different. But the big key is, this is just like John 1 happens before Mark 1. Remember that? You ready for the timeline now? When Paul cites Abraham as the example of justification by faith alone, he's quoting Genesis 15. When James talks about Abraham demonstrating, living out his justification so people could see it, he's referring to something that happened 30 years later. Okay? This happened first. This was an effect of that. You're not saved by doing the fruits of salvation. You have to have salvation before you have any fruit. And in fact, uh, you know, I don't think I'm where Abraham is myself. I mean, I think I'm a fairly mature Christian, uh, until OSU plays OU, and then I kind of, I lose my sanctification. My experiential, not my position. But, you know, this whole story had been, Abraham through Sarah is going to bear a male child that will be the Messiah's, you know, great, 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 great grandson, or father, I should say. Uh, and so to make sure, just to show Abraham where he was, God said, okay, you finally got Isaac after all these years of waiting, now I want you to sacrifice him. God's not for human sacrifice. He's giving him the ultimate test so Abraham can know he's about as mature as you can get spiritually. Now what do we know about Abraham, his ups and downs after he's justified? He does all kinds of slimy stuff, like lying about his wife and claiming to be his sister and being talked in because God's timing was different in giving them a son. Uh, the wife said, why don't you take my, my, uh, my maid and maybe God wants to, because he could do, kind of do that in that culture and then that child would be the one God's been talking about. And for some Abraham, for some reason Abraham thought that was a cool idea. Yeah, 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 why not? Let's do that. Uh, but God's changed him at this point. Whatever God says he's gonna do, even doesn't make sense. And Hebrews says, Abraham knew that even if he sacrificed his son, God would raise him back up. He knew Isaac was the guy. Okay, so 
you know, I'm I'm not at the position where I could you now I could sacrifice some of you guys, but um, if God told me to, Brad, if you know if that's what I had to do, I could probably do that. But I mean, I had to I had to catch him, and I can't catch him. Are your knees still in decent shape? Yeah, we've all got bad knees now. What happened there? We thought it was so cool playing softball those years and doing all this stuff, you know. But anyway, catches up with you. But watch this. Now, I, I'm just telling you, I don't, I don't think I could do that. Now, I know I can do all things, which doesn't mean Tim Tebow through touchdown passes necessarily, but all things in my character God wants me to do through Christ Jesus. So if God called me to do that, I would presume and I would assume he would give me what I need. I, I'm not willing to, to kill Jamie or sacrifice Jonathan. I'm just not. I'm not there yet. So I, you can't tell I'm a Christian based on that willingness to do that because I'm not. But this is like the ultimate example of mature faith. And if God says something, you know, the question is, if he says jump, the only question is what? But when you put that on a timeline, suddenly it makes sense. They're talking about two different things in two different parts of the guy's life. And Abraham gets someplace where very few Christians get, in my opinion. I'm not anywhere near there. Okay, this is one of my favorite ones. A lot of people, because they don't correlate, uh, and listen, do not get your theology of Christmas from Christmas cards, okay? Or from crushes, even from the ones back here, because we had to correct them, you know? Uh, you look at your average Christmas card, you're going to see baby Jesus in a manger with a halo. There was no halo. He veiled his glory, okay? Um, you're going to see the shepherds. You're going to see the three kings of Orient are, kind of thing. Didn't happen. The, sh- the shepherds got there the night of the birth. The Magi don't show up for at least a year later. And you know that by correlation. Now watch this. Luke 2 talks about the night of the birth, so make sure all your Christmas cards portray that, not the Babylonian big shots coming to town a year later. Now how do I know that? How can I be very dogmatic about that? You know why? Matthew tells you. I mean, it's another prepositional phrase that most of us blow through, and your paraphrases may just not even translate. Look at Mark or Matthew 2. Luke 2 is the famous Christmas passage, and that's what happened the night of the birth. This is later, about a year later, so Herod wants to overkill. Let's kill all the baby boys, two and under, make sure we get, get the Messiah after he gets their report. But now, look at this. I mean, again, he's just telling you this is not the same thing. Uh, it's the same kind of thing, but it's not taking place in the same uh, time frame at all. Luke told you what happened the night of the birth, and he makes that very clear. Matthew says, now after Jesus was born, about a year after. And he's, telling you, he's told you. So you got no excuse not to know that, but we don't notice that. We use the Evelyn Woods reading, speed reading dynamics during our Bible study when we read it once a week, and it doesn't always work. Let's talk about Passion Week. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, you know, John, the Gospel of John says Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke say he happened during the last, during the last week of his ministry. So who's right? How do you correlate Matthew 21 with John 2? I think you correlate them as similar but different events in different time frame, and it makes sense. At the very beginning of his public ministry, the first time he comes to Jerusalem, after his baptism, Jesus the Messiah sees the whole temple establishment is set up to rip people off and make money for the religious leaders. Can you, hey, Jose, you won't believe this, but some religious leaders are trying to get rich and famous off a little old lady sending them social security checks and stuff like that, and they give the rest of us a bad name. At the very beginning 
of his ministry, after 2,000 years of concerted prophecy about the Messiah coming, so look busy and be ready, they've got it blown. The, the visible structure is all corrupt. And Jesus says, I, I don't accept this. And they say to him, you'd have to be the, be the Messiah to do this. Who are you claiming to be to put us out of business? The only way you could outrank us if you're the Messiah. And they, what sign are you going to show us? And what does he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He's not talking about the building. He's talking about what? His body. So at the very beginning, John's emphasizing the system's corrupt. Three years later, the system still is corrupt. It hasn't changed a bit. So Jesus failed? No. The system failed to... I mean, big bureaucracies exist only to extend their existence, you know, and perpetuate their existence. So I, I got the wrong one. This should be understandable. Yeah, and the cool thing is, it actually lines up perfectly, <laughs> you know. This is the uh, the 26 major events of life of Christ based on the alphabet. But yeah, at the beginning of the ministry, the system's corrupt. At the end of the ministry, the system's still corrupt. The system hasn't changed a bit because God doesn't change, God doesn't so much change governments and systems. He changes people one heart at a time, one soul at a time. And ultimately that works up to change systems. But it's not some kind of top down, it's bottom up kind of thing. Okay, bottom line, context, not commentaries. The key to legitimate Bible interpretation is context, and context includes what? Correlation. So how do I know that these guys are already believers in Mark 1, when Jesus calls them full-time ministry? Because they were believers before John the Baptist was arrested. And then the Mark passage says, after John was arrested. You know, these guys are already believers. Jesus calls them the special full-time discipleship. I believe every... Christian is supposed to be a disciple. Disciple just means learner. Uh, anybody got a bulletin handy? You know, we always put our, Brad, we put our secret mission here on the front page of the bulletin every week. Uh, the, glor- m- mission, the mission of Tangled by Fellowship is glorify God, not to promote Pastor Brad's career, by actively participating in the ongoing fulfillment of the Great Commission as a body of believers who collectively, individually serve our Savior, Jesus Christ, and one another. We're trying to make disciples, not of Brad or James or the next pastor, but of Jesus Christ, even as we're trying to live as disciples. And that's what discipleship's all about. But these guys, Peter, James, and John, are a special level. Let's call them Apostles, capital A, right? So let me close this way. As Presbyterian minister and speaker, very famous in the 40s and 50s, Donald Wright Barnhouse famously said, and you've heard a lot of us say variations of this. Uh, most people's Bible questions are answered in the next verse or the one after that. He was just saying, just keep reading. But I'm going to, with no disrespect to Dr. Barnhouse, say, you got to look beyond the immediate context when you read, say, Mark 1. And after John the Baptist was arrested, was there anything that these guys did with John the Baptist before he was arrested? Yeah, you can find it. There'll be a... a Parallel passage in your in your kind of cross references in your Bible, in John one. You got to look beyond the the immediate passage for other input that might be relevant. Because if we fail to correlate parallel passages, we're going to run with one passage in ways that's just not correct. So uh, here's the thing: the Bible is written to be understood. However, we're told there are some things hard to understand. And you know what that means for me? Job security until retirement. You know, there's some things hard to understand. They get distorted. But the main things are plain things, and they get repeated a lot. All of sin, is that mentioned like twice in the Bible? That's like every page. And just look at the newspaper. Of course, you don't look at the newspaper. Look at 
where do you get your news? Yahoo News or something? Uh, Red State's pretty good, but um, uh, all of sin, wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they believe in the promised Savior. We look at the provided Savior. That gets repeated all over the place. Um, so the Bible's written to be understood, so don't let anybody take your Bible out of your hands. But you've got to interpret in context. You've got to read out of the text what it means in context as opposed to reading into it stuff you already want it to mean or you think it might mean. Okay? So let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for speaking to us in your word and not stuttering. But help us to realize that it's important for us to read not just a scattered verse or two here and there, but to read sentences and paragraphs and units of thought. And then before we get too excited with some new thing that we've discovered that nobody in the history of church has ever seen before, help us to look around for parallel passages or other places in Scripture where it's talking about Abraham and faith, where it's talking about Jesus and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and John the Baptist, and that kind of thing. Uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would always be our teacher, and that we'd be looking not for pretext as we read the Bible or information we can use to better criticize other people, but we'll be looking for life-changing truth from our heads and our hearts. And so move this information from our heads to our hearts, and I pray you'd be glorified by that process and by that product. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.